Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 79, The Indo-Greeks, Homer on the Indus. Whether he was a great conqueror or Buddhist saint, the death of Menander I Soter in approximately 130 BC marked a turning point for the Indo-Greeks, both in terms of their overall strength and our ability to give a coherent reconstruction of its history. Menander is the final Indo-Greek ruler, chronologically speaking, to be mentioned in any Greco-Roman text, and yet there are over 20 additional kings and queens that ruled for another 140 years, and almost all of them are only attested to by their coins. Indian sources and epigraphy are little better, and are still subject to intense scrutiny. Outside of broad strokes and individual snapshots, attempting to reconcile the various competing theories would be an exercise in futility. But we can give a general approximation of the events that transpired between the 2nd century BC and the 2nd century AD, not only to document the decline and fall of the Indo-Greek kingdoms, but also witness the development of Indo-Roman trade, and assess the legacy of Hellenistic rule in Central and South Asia, as new kingdoms and empires followed after. Upon his death, Menander was likely succeeded by a ruling pair, a king named Strato I, and a woman named Agathocleia, along with another figure named Zoilos I. This queen is unusual compared to her predecessors, a lack of evidence of royal women notwithstanding. Unlike Laodike, the mysterious woman who was found sharing the obverse side of a Eucratidid coin with a man named Heliocles, Agathocleia not only is depicted alongside Strato, but also minted coins bearing her own portrait, along with the title Basilices Theotropu Agathocleas, of the godlike queen Agathocleia. It is likely that Agathocleia was the wife of Menander and the mother of Strato, probably acting as a queen regent. The Karash, the inscriptions on these coins always associate her with Strato. She appears to have been a powerful figure, but not much else can be determined beyond this extent. What can be ascertained is that Menander's kingdom was divided upon his death, either on purpose, if Menander had multiple heirs and wished to allot a separate administrative region to them, or due to civil war. Several kings were now simultaneously occupying positions in Gandhara, the Swat and Taxila, Parapamisidae, the Hindu Kush, Arachosia, Kabul, and the Punjab. These figures appear to have competed and cooperated to varying degrees, but little is known outside of numismatic evidence, and to attempt to untangle this geographical and chronological web would be beyond the means of this project. What information do we have that can give us a general idea of the political situation of the Indo-Greek kingdoms at this time? The Heliodorus pillar confirms that Antialkidas I ruled in Taxila just before the end of the 2nd century, and made attempts to forge an alliance with King Kashiputra of Besnagar. We also know that he minted coins that display an iconographic blend of the Olympian Zeus and the Hindu Indra, and the envoy Heliodorus makes a very specific reference to the veneration of Vasudeva Krishna. It is very possible that Antiochidas was trying to gather the support of the Indian population and kingdoms to bolster his rule, perhaps due to a sense of political isolation, or even competition with the other Indo-Greek rulers. Antiochidas is also the only other Indo-Greek king, besides Menander, to be mentioned by an Indian source, so we are left in the dark about the movements of the other Hellenes. 
What is important to understand regarding the fate of the Indo-Greeks were the events that had taken place in the West. At about the same time as Menander's death, the last Greco-Bactrian king, Heliocles, had been overthrown or died. And from then on, Bactria would belong to the nomadic tribes of the steppe, known as the Uesci. But the Uesci were not the only peoples to have traveled down through Central Asia. Their movement from the Tarim Basin caused them to clash with another group called the Saka, a generic term used by the Persians to refer to any of the nomads that the Greeks would have called Scythian, or the Indian Shakas. The Saka were pushed into Bactria, perhaps being the responsible party for the destruction of the Greco-Bactrian city at Iconum. But they did not remain idle for long. It appears that they moved west directly towards the Parthian Empire, first battling Mithridates I and his son, Phraates II. Since the Parthians were already trying to deal with attacks by the Seleucids, this incursion caused a major crisis on Parthia's eastern border. At least one Parthian king was said to have been killed in battle against the Saka, and it was not until Mithridates II that they were finally driven out around 120 BC. With expansion into the Iranian plateau no longer an option, the Saka decided to turn back to the east. As far as we can tell, they did not challenge the Ueshi, but instead decided to set their sights on the now divided Indo-Greek kingdoms. By roughly the year 85, a Saka chieftain named Mawis, or Moga, led an invasion into Gandhara, attacking and toppling the then-ruling Indo-Greek king Archebios, and established the so-called Indo-Scythian or Indo-Saka kingdom, with Takshila as his capital. Dating this event is difficult, for although a dedication from the city demonstrates that there was a Mawis era, there is little context to give us any sense of chronology, which makes it an ambiguous piece of evidence to rely on. We know that he minted coins at Takshila that were inspired by his Greek predecessors, though he and other early Saka kings did not let themselves be portrayed with a side profile or bust. Despite his nomadic origins, Mawis appears to have integrated himself neatly into the pre-existing Greek framework. A unique coin minted by the Indo-Greek king Arthemidoros, who ruled within the lifetime of Mawis, hints at a connection with the Saka king. In some readings, the Karashthi legend can be interpreted as Artemidoros, son of the king of kings Mawes, which would seem to suggest that Mawes' children were either of mixed Saka Greek descent or had taken on a Greek name. Evidence for Saka Greek marriages might be found in the coins of a queen known as Makene, a royal lady presumed to be of a Greek background who oversaw joint issues of between herself and Mawes, perhaps an indication of a matrimonial bond. However, issues regarding the syntax of the Karashi legend on Artemidorus' coins have complicated its interpretation regarding the relationship between this Indo-Greek king and Mawis, as it could imply that Artemidorus was either a subordinate official, a joint king, or even an adopted son. Either way, the Saka ruler does not appear to have meddled much with the pre-existing structure of Hellenistic Gandhara. But while the Saka may have enjoyed their dominion over Takshila, the other Grindo-Greeks do not seem to have taken their presence too kindly. Following the death of Mawis in roughly 60 BC, the Indo-Greek Apollodotus II likely recaptured Takshila, evidenced by his overstriking of Mawis's coins and his use of the title Megas, perhaps a challenge to the Saka chieftain's use of the title King of Kings. This resurgence was a brief event, however, and soon the Greeks again faced a nomadic attack from another Saka king named Azes. 
Like with Maues, there appears to have been an Aziz era as well, this time dated to around 57 to 56 BC, which is taken to be the start of his reign in Takshila. Unfortunately, scholars are divided on whether there are two Aziz or just one, but we at least know that Aziz followed Apollodotus since the former overstruck the coins of the latter. The Chinese may also have something to say about the final days of the Indo-Greeks. According to the Han Shu, two diplomatic parties were sent out by the emperors Wu Di and Yuan Di to a land known as Jibin. Though Shendu, the term used by Zhang Chen to refer to India, is not mentioned, it is presumed that Jibin is referring to the area of Peshawar and parts of Gandhara. In the early 1st century BC, Wu Di sought to contact the king of Jibin, known as Wu Tulao, who reportedly murdered the envoys that arrived at his court, allegedly on the basis that the emperor was too far away to pose any serious threat. About 40 years later in the reign of Yuandi, a circa 48 to 33 BC, Wu Tulao's son sent his own mission with gifts back to China, attempting to apologize for the actions of his father. When a general of the Han named Wen Zhong oversaw the escort of the officials back to their homeland, he too was nearly murdered by the Jibin king, but he managed to escape and seek refuge in the court of a rival prince, Yin Mofu, in the neighboring city known as Rongchu. Both Wen Zhong and Yin Mofu became allies, attacking and overthrowing the Jibin king, and the Chinese envoy helped place the Rongchu prince on the throne, who was given an official seal of recognition and submission on behalf of the emperor. This is a complex tale, and early scholars like W.W. W. Tarn were initially inclined to think that Yimofu was an Indo-Greek king named Hermaios, believing that the city of Rongchu was a transliteration of the word Yonaki, city of the Greeks. Following this line of reasoning, Wu Tulao might also be a rendering of the Greek term for king, Basuleu. But Hermaios no longer is thought to have ruled during the time of Yuan-Di, and while the identity of these figures of Jibin are virtually impossible to identify, the Hanshu gives interesting tidbits of information that describe the area during this time. According to the reports, the kings of Jibin made gold and silver coins that had portraits of the king on one side and an image of the king riding a horse on the other. This description exactly matches the coins of the Indo-Scythians, specifically Aziz and his successor, Azilises, who minted designs showing themselves on top of a stallion, as befitting their nomadic heritage. And Aziz ruled Takshila at about the same time as Yuan-Di struck terms with Jibin. The dominance of non-Greek figures like Maues and Aziz symbolized the waning power of the Indo-Greek kingdoms, and this is also reflected by their coinage. True, Indian mints continued to produce high-quality specie for quite some time after Menander, but there is a noticeable drop by the early to mid-1st century BC. While the portraits of the Bactrian kings are considered some of the most beautiful and lifelike to ever be produced, the skill of the die cutters diminishes following Apollodorus's reign. Finer detail gives way to cruder and blockier designs, and the lettering becomes more prone to error. A debasement of the silver content of these coins is quite noticeable, as later Indo-Greek rulers would issue smaller and smaller denominations to compensate for the lack of purity. There is the double decadrachim of Amintas, the largest silver coin from the ancient world ever discovered, but it remains an extreme exception. Such a reduction in quality was very likely a consequence of local silver mines drying up, 
and due to other sources like the Barakshan Mountains in Bactria becoming increasingly more difficult to access as it was further occupied by the nomads. Based on the location of the coin finds and their monograms, it is evident that the final Greek rulers occupied the eastern Punjab. The surrounding areas had been taken over by the Indo-Saka successors of Azilises, generally known as the Kshatrapas, an Indian rendition of the Persian term Satrap, who were divided into a northern and western dynasty. Of the most important northern Kshatrapas was Rajuvula, who was able to proclaim himself king at Mathura in the first decade of the new millennium, as demonstrated by a sandstone lion capital erected in his name. Most scholars agree that the final Indo-Greek king was named Strato, though they are split as to whether it was Strato II or Strato III who held the unfortunate distinction. While the traditional ending date of the Hellenistic period is typically accepted with the death of Cleopatra VII of Egypt, it might very well be the case that the last independent Greek heirs of Alexander and the successors were these rulers of the Punjab, outlasting the Ptolemaic dynasty by another 40 years. Regardless, Rajuvula is believed to have overthrown the last Strato by 10 AD, as he imitated the latter's coins and extended his reach into the Punjab. It is also quite apparent that local Indian polities, namely the rulers of Jammu and the Kashmir, were also involved to some extent or another. This is evidenced by the coins of the last Indo-Greek kings adopting local Indian emblems, such as a trident battle axe, which would either indicate that they were politically tied to the Jammu rulers, or the Jammu minted imitation coins themselves, and had seized whatever vestigial territory was left of the crumbling Greek kingdom. The coins of Strato II are perfect representations of the Indo-Greeks at this time with the likeness of an extremely aged and sunken-cheeked man paired with almost indecipherable Greek lettering and rough-hewn images of Athena Alcademos, a pale imitation of those minted by the likes of Menander or the other Bactrian kings. After almost 200 years since Demetrius' invasion, and 300 after the death of Alexander the Great, Greek rule would decisively come to an end in India, not with a bang, but a whimper. With the death of Strato in the first decade of the new millennium, the history of the Indo-Greeks has come to an end. But let us push on forward, as it is still relevant for the rest of our discussion. Though the Indo-Scythians had overseen the collapse or absorption of the Greek kingdoms, they too would quickly fold as they themselves faced outside attacks. In roughly 20 AD, a new figure emerges from the coin records, a ruler known as Gondofaris who controlled much of the Indus Valley as King of Takshila until approximately 45. His name is unusual, as it is Parthian in origin, rather than that of Saka. He is the first of the so-called Indo-Parthian rulers, though how he or his kingdom were connected to the Parthian Empire is not entirely clear, since he appears to have been ruling in parallel with the kings in the west. He possibly could have been a breakaway figure, perhaps a disgruntled or independent princeling looking to stake his own claim, or it could have been the case of joint kingship and coordination across vast territories. The Indo-Parthians are almost unknown beyond their coins, but there are a few Western accounts that provide further information. The author of the Periplus, written around the time of Gundafares' death, confirms that the Indo-Parthians were engaged in frequent civil wars, 
and few remained on the throne for long. Contrasting with the mercantile text of the Periplus is the New Testament Apocrypha, known as the Acts of St. Thomas. Though it is purported to be written by an unknown Syriac author some two centuries later, the work describes the travels of the Christian apostle St. Thomas, who famously journeyed to India to proselytize in the middle of the first century AD. Its religious connotations and later composition should rightly lead one to hesitate in accepting it at face value, but there are several accurate observations regarding India at the time. According to the Chronicle, Thomas ended up at the court of an Indian king named Gundaforas, where he served as a carpenter and spiritual advisor, whose great deeds compelled both the king and many of his subjects to undergo a conversion to Christianity. Obviously, Gundaforas must be the same as the Indo-Parthian ruler, Gundafaris, though whether he actually adopted or patronized Christianity is entirely speculative. It is perhaps because of the instability brought about by Gundafaris' death that the Indo-Parthian kingdom quickly declined and fell apart, shortly before the end of the first century. Precipitating this collapse would be yet another group of migrating nomads, the Ueshi, or, more specifically, the Kushans. We briefly touched upon the origins of the Ueshi in our discussion on the arrival of the Chinese into Central Asia, but it is worth exploring a little more. According to our Chinese sources, the Ueshi were originally a powerful nomadic confederation living at the eastern end of the Tarim Basin. In contrast to other nomadic groups like the Saka, who were of Indo-Iranian origin, or the Xiongnu, who perhaps spoke some sort of Proto-Turkic or Proto-Mongolian language, the Ueshi are believed to have been descendants of an Indo-European language group, generally referred to as the Takarians. Whether they continue to speak Takarian at this point, or whether we can so easily identify them as Takarians at all, remains contentious but irrelevant at the present. As we can recall, the Ueshi had been pushed from the Tarim Basin in the early mid-2nd century BC, due to the expansion of the Xiongnu Empire, and clashes with other tribes like the Wu Sun pushed them into Central Asia, thereby driving out the previously established Saka. Greek authors like Strabo identify the Tokarians, or Tokaroi, as one of the main nomadic tribes to seize Bactria from the Greeks, and variations of the word Tokarian were used by the likes of the Persians and Tibetans to refer to the Ueshi. As reported by Zhang Chen, the Ueshi did not directly control all of Bactria as of 128 BC, mainly occupying the regions north of the Amu Darya River, but it appears that the cities of southern Bactria were vassals or tributary states of some kind. The Ueshi reportedly numbered upwards of 500,000 and were said to possess a formidable fighting force of nearly 200,000 warriors. While they would always retain aspects of their nomadic heritage, it appears that the Kushans were quickly acculturating themselves to the sedentary population that they now ruled over, such as minting imitation coins of the previous Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kings. We have little information about what the Ueshi were doing throughout the late 2nd and early 1st centuries, though we have an explanation from the Hanshu that the Ueshi had divided themselves into five princedoms, Yabgu, by 40 BC. Of these Yabgus, the most important to us are the Guishuang, the Kushans. Why they had divided is unclear, but soon a prominent prince among the Kushan, Kajula Katfises, had risen to power in the middle of the 1st century AD. According to an inscription from the site of Takt-i-Bahi, 
Pajula was originally a vassal or a prince at the court of Gundafaris, but he soon managed to reunite the Ueshi under his banner, establishing the mighty Kushan Empire. Besides the Chinese accounts which speak of this event, we are thankfully given collaborating information. The contemporary author of the Periplus noted that the warlike Bactrians were under a single king, and the later Kushan rulers themselves honored Kajula as the founding dynast. Following his death in roughly 80 AD, Kajula's successors embarked on a series of conquests that would expand their reach from Bactria through Gandhara and India as far as the Upper Ganges, but also northwards into parts of Sogdiana and Fergana, with tributary states in the Tarim Basin and the Lower Ganges. The most important and famous of these successors would be Kanishka I, or Kanishka the Great, Kajula's great grandson who ruled from approximately 127 to 150, the height of Kushan power. Kanishka was renowned in much the same manner as Ashoka and Menander, honored in Buddhist sources as a generous patron and convert, but he and the other Kushans were dynamic rulers, capable of employing a wide array of imagery that reflected both their nomadic origins and the cosmopolitan nature of their empire. Bactrian, Indian, Buddhist, and even Greek. The Kushan appeared to have been politically stable and oversaw a time of general prosperity, fueled by a desire for trade and exchange within the various states of Eurasia. It is in the reign of Kanishka where we will halt our narrative of the former Hellenistic Far East, and let us return to the Mediterranean world to see what developments have occurred in the interim. rule in India had definitively come to an end in the new millennium. The Hellenistic kingdoms of the Mediterranean had disappeared almost a half century before. The Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and the Antigonids were all swallowed up by the growing power of the Roman Empire by 30 BC, then ruled by Augustus Caesar. The Parthians had taken away the former Seleucid holdings in Mesopotamia and the Iranian Plateau, and the Kushans now ruled over what was Greco-Bactria and the Indo-Greek kingdoms. Further still was the Chinese Han Empire, and the various dynastic kingdoms of India and Sri Lanka, like Satvahana and Cholas. For the first time in centuries, a degree of relative stability was experienced by much of the Eurasian landmass, an era marked by increased connectivity, mainly economic, between the various empires from the Mediterranean to China. This is generally thought of as the First Silk Roots period a concept used to describe the period between 1st century BC to the 3rd century AD. As was the case with my discussion of Han China in the West, was there truly a Silk Road? Almost certainly not. It is clear that those like the Chinese and Romans probably knew almost nothing about each other, and their interaction was punctuated by only one or two direct encounters. Still, the degree of economic exchange that took place was on a scale that was not rivaled again until the medieval period. For the Roman Empire, most of their foreign mercantile activities took place through maritime adventures. The conquest of the Iranian plateau by the Parthians had severed the direct land routes between the Mediterranean and India during the mid-2nd century. This had an adverse effect on the trade networks of the Hellenistic world, as the Hellenistic kings and later Roman officials were hesitant on enriching their Parthian neighbors through tariffs and customs for eastern goods. The Chinese were acutely aware of this problem 
who spoke of how the Parthians were not keen on letting the Romans get in direct contact with the Chinese government so they could remain the key middlemen in the silk trade. By the late 2nd century, though, the Ptolemies were able to find a solution to the problem by turning to naval expeditions instead. While the Red Sea and even the Persian Gulf had been extensively incorporated into the maritime network of the Hellenistic world, sailing to India has always been problematic. The Greeks were unaware of the monsoon winds that could seriously hamper travel in the Indian Ocean, as what happened when Alexander's commander Nearchus attempted to sail down the Indus back to the Persian Gulf in 324. It appears that Seleucid sailors were not privy to this information either. According to Strabo, a shipwrecked sailor from India was rescued by the Ptolemaic Coast Guard along the Red Sea during the reign of Ptolemy VIII Physcon. After being brought back to Alexandria and taught Greek, the Indian traveler was hired as a navigator to guide a naval expedition led by a man named Eudoxus of Cyzicus, a skilled explorer of the Nile River. Thanks to the knowledge of the Indian, Eudoxus earned the distinction of being the first known Greek to exploit the monsoon winds and make a round trip from India. Other sources suggest that the credit should go to Hippolus, another Greek sailor that may or may not have been a subordinate of Eudoxus, and the western monsoon would be known thereafter as the Hippolyan winds. As an interesting aside, there is a curious reference regarding the final days of the Ptolemaic dynasty in India. According to authors like Cassius Dio and Plutarch, Cleopatra VII planned an escape for herself and for her son, Caesarion, after the disaster at Actium, by sailing through the Red Sea and into the Indian Ocean. From there, they would have either disembarked in Parthian territory, or, more likely, in India. The plan never came to fruition, though, as an attack by Nabataean raiders burned the ships that were prepared to take them. If we are to believe that India was their ultimate destination, I cannot help but wonder if Cleopatra was looking to escape to the last independent Hellenistic kingdom outside of Roman or Parthian control, the Indo-Greek kingdoms of Zoilos II and or Apollophanes I. But it seems that the Ptolemies did not exploit this newfound knowledge to its full benefit. However, the Roman desire for trade along the Indian Ocean was fueled by a much larger population of wealthy aristocrats and later emperors with insatiable demands for goods like spices, gemstones, pearls, and, vis-a-vis -vis the Indian connection with China, bolts of silk. Less than a few years after the conquest of Egypt, the scale of trade between the Roman-controlled Mediterranean and India spiked dramatically. According to Strabo, the number of ships heading between the Red Sea to the Indian Ocean went from 20 per year under the Ptolemies to over 120 during Augustus's reign. Because the government could place a quarter tax in all goods coming into the harbors of Alexandria and the Red Sea from India, they were able to gain extraordinary revenues. Over 250 million sesterces would be deposited each year into imperial coffers by the mid-first century AD, out of a total value of one billion. Upwards of one quarter to one third of the annual revenues were brought into the Roman Empire this way. For those like Pliny the Elder, a member of the senior staff of the Emperor Vespasian, there were serious consequences due to trade with India. Regardless of the moralizing about the excessive consumption of luxuries, he was astute in his observations. Foreign goods like spices, silk, and frankincense were all renewable resources. Precious metals like gold and silver, brought by Roman traders to the east to purchase these items from locals, were not. 
there was an uncomfortable realization that the finite Roman supply of bullion was dwindling, being carried out of the local economy and into foreign markets, where they would often be melted down for local use. Such a situation was not suitable for the long term. Pliny reports that upwards of 100 million sesterces was leaving the empire with each year, and the gold and silver mines would not last forever. A preponderance of literary evidence gives us a better insight into the wants and fears of the Roman consumer during this period, but there is clear evidence of Roman exports beyond their bullion evident in the Kushan Empire in India. Nothing encapsulates the diverse tastes of the Kushan elite than the Bagram Horde, a large deposit of treasures found at the former Kushan capital of Bagram in Afghanistan. The contents of this collection date roughly to the 1st or 2nd centuries AD, but reflect the Kushan's cosmopolitan taste for luxury goods, with items such as Roman glassware and bronze statues, along with carved Indian ivories and Chinese lacquer. did the Mediterranean world know about the Greek kings in Bactria and India? As no doubt I have hammered into your head at this point, the scarcity of writings on the Greco-Bactrians and Indo-Greeks are an unfortunate fact of life. We have seen clear evidence of Hellenistic intellectual culture, as per the Sophitos inscription in Aracosia or the Maximus in Delphi in Iconum. But if there were any written histories or panegyrics glorifying the deed of the many kings, we have no record of them. Echoes of knowledge about the Greek rules of Bactria in India clearly passed into the writings of later Greeks and Romans, however, and I think it is worth investigating. One of the most important Hellenistic sources for affairs in Central Asia comes from the work of Apollodorus, a Greek historian of the 1st century BC who chronicled the history of the Parthian Empire in his Parthica. He was from the city of Artemita in modern Iraq, then ruled by the Parthians, and it was possible that he was able to draw his findings from either nearby Seleucia on the Tigris or relied on Parthian sources and traditions. The Parthica has since been lost, but authors like Strabo and Justin directly cite his work. While the focus is on the eponymous Parthians, Apollodorus chronicled the history of the Greco-Bactrians, and possibly the Indo-Greeks as well, since he admirably spoke of Menander, and clearly he viewed them as integral to the story of the Arsacid dynasty. Later Roman authors who cited Apollodorus' work were more interested about the Parthians, the great imperial rival of Rome for 300 years, rather than the Greeks of Bactria and India, and so surviving experts on that matter are considerably thin. Another important author relating to Central Asia was Isidore of Carax's Parthian Stations. Like with Apollodorus, Isidore was a Greek living under Parthian control around the turn of the first century in the city of Carax Spasinu a former Seleucid site on the northern mouth of the Persian Gulf that later became the capital of the kingdom of Karakin. At this point, Karakin was a vassal state of the Parthians, but Isidore wrote an itinerary of the major land routes of the Parthian Empire, providing distances between cities and supply stations, perhaps intended as a guide for a Roman invasion of Parthia. The Parthian stations was written contemporary to the final days of the Indo-Greeks, and Isidore describes the roads leading to the cities of India like Alexandria and Aracosia and the kingdom of the Indosaka. Alexandria and Aracosia, likely Kandahar, is still described as the bustling metropolis of the region, and he also mentions the city of Demetrius, 
otherwise unknown to us, but presumed to be a settlement founded by the Indo-Greeks following the initial invasion over the Hindu Kush. Isidore also seems to have composed a history of the Parthians, but it does not survive, and it is unknown if he ever talked about the Greco-Bactrians. Moving away from the Parthians, our best source of knowledge on Indo-Roman trade comes from the sailing manual known as the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea. Written in Greek by an anonymous Roman during the mid to late 1st century AD, the Periplus is an itinerary of the maritime routes of anyone journeying from Alexandrian Egypt to the Indian Ocean. Similar in style to the Parthian stations, it was likely an eyewitness account of a merchant. All the major trading posts en route to India are described in detail, including a list of all exports and imports tied to each region. One major hub was Barigaza, the site of modern Baruch, situated along the coast of the Gulf of Kambat in modern Gujarat. It was an extremely important trading port for the Indo-Saka, and Roman traders would visit to sell goods like wine and coral from return for gemstones and cotton, among other products. Beyond providing the economic picture of the region, our anonymous source gives a couple interesting tidbits of information relating to the Indo-Greeks. Quote, in the area, there are still preserved to this very day signs of Alexander's expedition, ancient shrines and the foundations of encampments and huge wells. There are found on the market in Barigaza, even today, old drachmas engraved with the inscriptions, in Greek letters, of Apollodotus and Menander, rulers who came after Alexander. End quote. Obviously, the attribution of these ruins to Alexander is incorrect. The Macedonian king never made it out of the Punjab. But if the merchant was able to correctly recognize these fortifications as being Greek in style, then he is probably referring to the later Indo-Greek campaigns. Both comments seem to imply that the author is either well-read or was provided information by others in the area. But it is hard to tell how familiar he was with the Indo-Greeks. Coins of Indo-Greek and Indo-Saka rulers have been found as far as Britain but it is likely that these were not actually used by any of the traders as coin money in the strictest sense, and were probably relied more for their bulk silver content. One of the most bizarre yet interesting stories we have comes from the Athenian sophist Flavius Philostratus. Writing in the late 2nd to early 3rd century AD, he composed a biography on a Pythagorean teacher of the mid-1st century AD named Apollonius of Tyana. According to the tale, Apollonius was something of a wanderer, his travels taking him down to the furthest reaches of the known world. Among his destinations was the city of Takshila, whose leader received Apollonius as an honored guest and engaged in philosophical debates with him. The work gives a detailed account of Takshila, which Apollonius describes as being as large as Assyrian Nineveh and organized in the manner of a Greek settlement, commenting on the many temples and works of art in the city that evoked the memories of Alexander the Great and his battle with Porus. Philostratus claims that the main source on this matter were the notebooks of Apollonius's disciple, Damis. Naturally, this has attracted suspicion from modern scholars, who doubt the existence of Damis's writings and assert that Apollonius's itinerary is heavily embellished to exaggerate his importance and the assertion of Greek elements in Takshila are intended to diminish its Indianness. Despite the strange circumstances of the biography, there are interesting details to the story that line up with the organization of northwestern India. According to Philostratus, 
The ruling prince of Takshila who hosted Apollonius was named Phraotes. The name seems to be Parthian in origin, and the region would have been dominated by an Indo-Parthians at this time period. Takshila at this time was also not just a single city, as the Indo-Greeks established a sister site at Sirkap that was more structured like a typical Hellenistic city, and the extra amenities like frescoes or altars to Alexander would make more sense if it were a former Indo-Greek settlement. While it appears that certain elements of the story were drawn from older sources like Megasthenes Indica, or even Theseus, Philostratus likely used a well-informed yet unknown account dating to the 1st century AD. How much we can take the story as fact remains to be seen. The appearances of the Bactrian and Indo-Greek kings in the literary traditions of the Greco-Roman world are far and few in between. But we might find them in the most unexpected of places. In the 14th century, the medieval English poet Geoffrey Chaucer makes a curious reference in his The Knight's Tale, one of the stories of his Canterbury Tales. Among the many classically inspired figures in the Great Tourney, a certain warrior can be found that is described as follows. Quote, With Archite, as we find in histories, came riding, god of arms, the great Emetrius, king of India, upon a bay steed. Its trappings were of steel, and it was covered with cloth of gold patterned skillfully. His coat of arms was a cloth of tartary, set with pearls that were white and smooth and large. His saddle was of burnished gold newly hammered. A short mantle hanging upon his shoulders was brimful of rubies, sparkling like fire. His curly hair was clustered in ringlets. It was yellow and glittered like the sun. End quote. The description of an Indian king sharing European features, along with the similarity of the names Ametrius and Demetrius, is almost certainly a reference to the famed Euthydemid conqueror of the same name. Still, one cannot help but wonder where exactly Chaucer picked this information up from. Was it from Strabo or Justin? Perhaps an account that was known in the Middle Ages but lost to us? Either way, it remains a mystery. For those like Strabo, Chaucer, and Tarn, the stories of the Greeks in Bactria and India captured the imagination of many. Romantic notions of Hellenic civilization flourishing in the furthest outposts of the ancient world led scholars to desperately search for evidence that would validate the authors of antiquity, scouring the Afghan countryside for the supposed thousand cities of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom or looking through Indian literature for proof of Greek epics and philosophy being translated into Sanskrit. For much of the 20th century, piles of coins bearing the images and names of kings like Demetrius and Menander were the only significant pieces of evidence that the Greeks were there at all, despite occupying these lands for over 300 years. Alfred Fouché, the father of Gandharan studies and head of archaeological teams tasked with investigating the Greek cities of Afghanistan, expressed serious doubts about ever finding anything of substance, describing the fervor as a Bactrian mirage. Despite the pioneering work of W.W. W. Tarn, his reconstructions at the time stood on the flimsiest piles of evidence compared to the claims he makes, his tales of the Greco-Bactrian dynasties being more reminiscent of a soap opera than any serious attempt at historiography. 
With such poor presence in the archaeological record and with little to no evidence of Hellenic culture among the later communities of Central Asia and India, scholar A.K. Narayan's landmark text, The Indo-Greeks, argues that Menander and his contemporaries were but a blip in the history of India, quoting that the Greeks came, the Greeks saw, but India conquered. As we've discussed over these many episodes, these perceptions need to be radically reconsidered. Nearly five decades of archaeological research has dramatically changed our understanding of Hellenistic Central Asia and India, not only with major finds like the city of Ikonum, but also inscriptions and objects that, when paired with the ancient accounts, can help us assess the legacy and impact of Greek rule. One of the most notable trends that we see was the continued use of the Greek language and alphabet. As was the case with Egypt in the Near East, Greek became the administrative lingua franca for both Bactria and Gandhara, well into the Kushan period. Positions like the Meridarchos and Strategos can be found throughout the first centuries BC and AD, and even the title of Satrap, a holdover from Persian rule, has also been discovered. Kushan rulers until Kanishka routinely utilized the titles of Basileus, king, and Basileus Basileon, king of kings, including Greek epithets. Long before his identification, the fourth Kushan emperor, Vima Takto, was only known to Numismatis as Soter Megas, Great Savior. Under their authority, the Bactrian language was codified into a written form for the first time, using the Greek alphabet as a base, though they added a few characters to compensate variations in sound. The Macedonian calendar, adapted from the Babylonian one following Alexander's conquests, also remained part of the administrative formula, as seen in Karashthi inscriptions transliterating the Macedonian Panemos, June and July, into the Indian variation Panema. Derived from the Seleucid era, the Indo-Greek era inspired many similar dating systems in India thereafter, that of Mawis, Azes, and Kanishka. The Seleucid era itself continued to be used by Nestorian Christians as far as Kazakhstan and China in the 14th century AD. This linguistic survival may also have been noted by the Greco-Roman world as well, as we have records of Indian ambassadors visiting the court of the Emperor Augustus in the late 1st century BC. The biographer Suetonius tells us as much, though is somewhat vague, stating that envoys from, quote, the Indians and Scythians, nation only known to them by hearsay, had come to pay respects. It is quite possible that he's referring to representatives from the Indo-Saka, who would be ruling over Gandhara at this time. Strabo, relying on the testimony of a man who met another group of Indian ambassadors in Syria, gives us more detail. A group of Indian envoys journeyed to Rome in order to establish an alliance with Augustus on behalf of a King Porus, who provided Caesar with gifts as an incentive. Strabo's eyewitness makes it clear that he was able to understand the intentions of the Indians because they came with a letter, written in Greek on a leather strip. Certainly, the name of this Indian ruler who allegedly oversaw 600 subordinate kings is suspect, given the overt connection with the Porus who battled Alexander the Great. The mention of Greek writing is oddly specific, though, and Strabo himself attests to seeing the gifts of these Indian ambassadors as described by his eyewitness namely an armless Indian youth named Hermas. Another consistent feature of the story is the reference to leather skins being used as a writing material. Leather was used in tax documents on Greco-Bactria, 
and Zhang Chen noted that leather with horizontal writing was employed for record-keeping when he visited the area. These details add credibility to this story, and provides ample evidence that Greek continued to be used as a diplomatic language under the Indo-Saka, and possibly later. According to Philostratus, Apollonius was surprised when he visited Takshila, and was greeted with the fluent Greek of King Phraotes, who ruled during the Indo-Parthian period. Clearly then, Greek must have been utilized to a significant extent long after the Indo-Greek kingdoms fell. But there is a marked decline in its overall quality when seen in any official presentation, particularly on coins. We find that local engravers were beginning to introduce spelling errors into their work, without much need for correction. There was also a clear policy shift regarding its use during the height of Kushan rule. In 1993, members of the Mahajadeen stumbled upon the remains of a Kushan-era temple outside of the small Afghan village of Rabatak. Inside was a large inscription, dedicated on behalf of Kanishka I to inaugurate his first regnal year, approximately 127-128 AD. While it has proven invaluable for providing a genealogy of Kushan rulers, it also provides key evidence as to the fate of the Greek language within Central Asia and India. One translation of the first few lines reads as follows, quote, The great salvation, Kanishka the Kushan, the righteous, the just, the autocrat, the god, worthy of worship, who has obtained the kingship from Nana and from all the gods, who has inaugurated the year one as the gods pleased, and he issued a Greek edict, and then he put it into Arian. End quote. In the context of this proclamation, Arian refers to the Bactrian language, but Kanishka does not mean that he has made a bilingual version of an inscription in both Greek and Bactrian. He is explicitly saying that he is making a conscious effort to replace Greek with Bactrian, albeit Bactrian using the Greek alphabet, in all official capacities. This is evidenced by the overstriking of coins, swapping the names of Greek gods with Iranian or Indian ones, and the general decline of the Greek language. Given that the earliest Kushans were descended from Tukarian speakers, to declare the adoption of an Iranian language for administrative purposes so openly must have been a calculated political statement, likely aided by the decline or absorption of the Greek elite into Central Asia and India. Yet the use of Greek characters for Bactrian can be seen on the coins and administrative documents of the Turkic Shahi dynasty that ruled Kabul in the 8th century AD. Along with their language, so too did the Greeks bring their literature. The speculation of the transmission of Greek intellectual culture, be it in the form of plays, philosophy, or history, in Central and South Asia, has persisted in the minds of many classicists and Indologists alike, who have hunted through the great works of India to see if there was any evidence of its survival. Despite their best efforts, their search has turned up relatively for naught, and no known examples of Greco-Bactrian or Indo-Greek scholarship have survived in their complete form. Parallels can certainly be made between works like the Questions of King Melinda and the Letters of Pseudo-Aristeus, or the Doctrine of the Buddha and that of Piro of Elise, but in the absence of any concrete evidence, it becomes tempting to create connections when they aren't necessarily there. Similar ideas and structures could have arisen independently long before the Hellenistic period, and it may be too tempting to try and assume that one of must have influenced the other in lieu of this time of close contact. Still, there is sufficient literary and archaeological evidence that hints at something more. 
For a long period of time, the writings of the Greco-Roman authors were all that scholars could rely upon for evidence of Helen's culture thriving in Bactria and India. In a speech regarding the importance of Homer, the first-century orator Dio Chrysostom exclaimed that, quote, It is said that Homer's poetry is sung even in India, where they have translated it into their own speech and tongue. End quote. This is quite a remarkable statement, and there are many possible conclusions we can draw from this. One is that Dio is exaggerating to illustrate his point. He was a philosopher and orator, not a historian. He does not provide the source for his claim, and considering he wrote it over 50 years since the end of the Indo-Greek kingdoms, it may be hard to take at face value. However, the near-contemporary Elians states the same thing. Plutarch is more colonialist in his estimation of Greek culture thriving in Asia, claiming that it was because of Alexander's conquests that the Gadrosians were chanting the verses of plays by Sophocles and Euripides. It is possible that the observers who informed Dio and Alien mistook the Indian epics, like the Mahabharata and the Rig Veda, as that of Homer. Dio also tells us that Indian visitors and merchants were among his audience while he was giving speeches in Alexandria. Did he hear firsthand from these very same sources? Perhaps, or it could just be simple oratory embellishment. However, archaeological discoveries have since greatly illuminated our understanding of the intellectual life of the region during this time. Frankly, if there was to be any literature brought with the Greek conquerors, it would have been Homer. Well-educated Indians could have understood the similarities between the Greek epics and their own. And it has become clear that Homer and Greek mythology was known in both Central Asia and Northwestern India. The stele of Sophitos demonstrated the knowledge of a man, likely of a Hellenized Indian background, who lived and died at Kandahar in Afghanistan, who was sufficiently learned enough to pay homage to Homer's Odyssey, and even more contemporary poets like Callimachus of Alexandria. Whether it was a direct consequence of Hellenistic rule, or as a byproduct of the trade with Rome, the local artists of Gandhara likely possessed a passing knowledge of Greek myth, and would even borrow scenes from the Homeric cycle, most famously exemplified by the panel depicting the Trojan horse. Several later Indian plays and stories may have adopted this tradition, retaining the concept of hiding soldiers inside of the belly of a wooden animal to break into the walls of a city though the horse is appropriately substituted with that of an elephant. Plutarch's claims of Gadrosian renditions of Euripides and Sophocles may not be so far-fetched when we see the remains of a theater at I Canum and passages of an unknown drama recovered from its libraries. Indian theater was practiced in the Vedic period, but there is no reason not to believe that the performances of the Greeks were not appreciated. Gandharan artwork with Dionysian undertones is often presented in a very theatrical manner, and the Sanskrit term referring to a painted background used for production is called a Yavanika, little Greek thing. This appreciation for Greek arts may be seen in the taste of the Kushan elite, who eagerly imported Roman goods like glassware and statues. Based on the materials recovered from sites like the Bagram Horde, it is quite likely that this demand was due to the legacy and influence of the Indo-Greeks, that the Kushan recognized the aspects of Hellenistic continuity in the Roman Empire as being similar to what they knew, and thus were happy to acquire these products and carry them into the afterlife. This is also likely why the Gandharan artists so heavily adopted Hellenistic motifs and designs into overwhelmingly Buddhist sculptures drawing upon the imagery of Indo-Greek courts and the persistence of literary culture in the area.
While sites like Iconum were destroyed or abandoned, many of the settlements founded by the Greeks appeared to have prospered and retained a sense of Hellenic identity long afterwards. Alexandrian Arachosia is still described by Isidore of Carax as a flourishing metropolis during the 1st century AD, which is also likely confirmed by the Chinese description of Wu Yi Shanli. The Melinda Panya and other Pali texts refer to the city of Alessandra centuries after Indo-Greek rule, and Menander's capital of Sagala is described as a bustling center of commerce and organization. The continuity of Greco-Bactrian architecture in the Kushan Empire was also observed by Chinese travelers. A Tang period scholar who annotated the records of the Grand Historian quoted the now lost work, the author of which noted that the cities of Daiyueshi, the Kushans, resembled those of the Da Qin, the Roman Empire, or, more broadly, the Greco-Roman tradition. Given the cultural reverence of Alexander the Great in both the Mediterranean and the Middle East, one may wonder if there was a lingering memory in the worlds of Central Asia and India. If we follow the accounts of those like Claudius Ptolemy, Strabo, and Isidore of Carax, several cities, for instance, Alexandria and Arachosia, continued to carry the name of the eponymous king after the end of the Greco-Bactrian and Indo-Greek kingdoms. Few, if any, pieces of Indian literature referred to Alexander's campaigns, though, which might be viewed from the Indian perspective as an extended raiding party rather than a grand conquest. By contrast, the Greco-Roman authors insist that there was a strong knowledge of Alexander. Referring to the giant altar set up by Alexander in honor of the Olympian pantheon at the banks of the Hyphasis River to commemorate the end of his journey, Plutarch suggests that the kings of the Praesi continued to venerate this spot and pay sacrifices in a Greek fashion. This sounds more akin to what might have been done when the Indo-Greeks occupied the Punjab. And like with the tale of Menander's funeral, this may indeed be a piece of information that fluttered into Plutarch's library from the east. Philostratus's account of Apollonius's travels in India include a description of Takshila that states, quote, And they saw a temple. They saw, in front of the wall, which was not far short of a hundred feet in size, made of porphyry, and there was constructed within it a shrine. For bronze tablets were nailed into each of its walls, on which were engraved the exploits of Porus and Alexander. The composition was like the subject of some famous painting by Zeuxis, or Polygnotus, and Euphranor, who delighted in light and shade. And, they say, here was also an appearance of real life, as well as depth and relief. And the metals were blended in the design, melted in like so many colors. And the character of the picture was also pleasing in itself, for Porus dedicated these designs after the death of the Macedonian, who was depicted in the hour of victory, restoring Porus who was wounded, and presenting him with India, which was now his gift. End quote. If these did exist, it is highly unlikely that these tablets were set up in the 4th century BC, but perhaps they were built on the orders of the Indo-Greeks. But is there anything in Central Asia? In the Tashkent National Museum of Uzbek History, there is a fresco recovered from Phyas Tepe, a Buddhist archaeological site dated to the Kushan period, showing what appears to be a man with divine attributes, more specifically, a halo and the presence of two curled ram horns. Could this be the horned incarnation of Alexander Amon, famously depicted on the coins of Lysimachus and statues throughout the Mediterranean? Even the person's features share a strong resemblance to the Alexander mosaic recovered from Pompeii, 
supposedly based on a painting by the king's personal artist, Apelles. It's an attractive theory, but some experts refute it by suggesting it was a wealthy female Buddhist patron, based upon similar headgear that was available to royal ladies in the region. Another example may be found at Tapa Shotor, a few miles south of Jalalabad, that possessed extraordinary carvings and one of the most impressive examples of later Gandharan art. Photographs show a large niche containing the Buddha, who sits between Heracles Vajrapani and a figure similar in form to the winged goddess Taiki. But among this group is an attendant of the Buddha that bears a heavy likeness to statues of Alexander the Great. Tragically, the monument has since been destroyed, and any further investigation is impossible. It is unfortunate that we must conclude our series on something of a melancholy note. Though Bactria and the rest of Central Asia were a hub of cultural exchange and activities for centuries, there is little surviving evidence that allows us to reconstruct the history of the Greco-Bactrians, the Indo-Greeks, or the Indo-Saka and the Kushans alike. Tragically, the turbulent geopolitical environment of nations like Afghanistan has threatened to destroy whatever is left. With the rise of religious extremists and insurgent groups such as the Taliban, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of looted and destroyed archaeological sites. These actions are often motivated by financial reasons. Soldiers, and sometimes impoverished local inhabitants, looking to plunder the remains of temples and old settlements in search of goods to sell on the antiquities market. Other times, it is due entirely to ideological reasons, such as iconoclasm or anti-heretical zealotry. As such, the cultural loss has been staggering. Iconum, formerly the most well-preserved Greco-Bactrian settlement to ever be discovered, now resembles a battlefield, with large craters pockmarking the surrounding area, thanks to the digging of prospective treasure hunters, eager to dig up an artifact or a coin hoard, who either use shovels or dynamite to get access to the goods beneath the earth. The Buddhas of Bamayan were some of the largest known Buddhist statues in the world, measuring over 150 feet in height and carved out of a cliffside in the Bamiyan Valley of Afghanistan. Their creators were the heirs of the Gandharan school, and the monument was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But, in 2001, they were blown up on the orders of the Taliban co-founder, Mohammed Omar Mujadid, citing idolatry. Tapa Shotor was also a victim of Taliban desecration and destroy during the Afghan Civil War of the 1990s. The Temple of Rabatak, which provided the key to unlocking the chronology of Kushan rule, was torn down using bulldozers shortly after the vandalism at Bamayan. Civil wars and despotic regimes make archaeological missions challenging, and these groups are willing to turn a blind eye to the despoiling of dig sites and museums if it fits their ideological narrative, or they can receive monetary kickbacks. Many of our most extraordinary finds are only kept within the collections of private individuals, such as the Stele of Sofitos. Who knows how many artifacts remain hidden amongst antiquities dealers and collectors that could potentially revolutionize our current understanding. This laundry list of grievances is not meant as an attack on the peoples of Afghanistan or any of the surrounding regions. The global demand for ancient art and artifacts compels these groups to provide them with the goods they are looking for. Poverty and the need to feed families in times of war often trump qualms about the loss of cultural heritage. This is also not a modern phenomenon either, as colonial powers of the 19th and 20th centuries eagerly took part in the hunt for buried coins, 
or stripped apart old Buddhist temples to stock their museums with magnificent statues and friezes. Ethics aside, it is certainly better to catalog and store these artifacts than see them destroyed, but due to the circumstances of their acquisition, it is almost impossible now to trace the provenance of many of these pieces, and so we lose valuable information provided by their original context. At the time of writing this in early 2022, the Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan once again following the exit of American troops in the autumn of 2021. Their past willingness to participate in the wholesale destruction or exploitation of the cultural heritage of Afghanistan in the past does not suggest an amicable future for Central Asian studies. While this is a lamentable situation, there is a glimmer of hope. A dedicated community of scholars and officials, many of whom are from Central and South Asia, are willing to put themselves in harm's way to ensure the protection of these vulnerable archaeological sites and museum collections. Thanks to the internet, the digitization and archiving of thousands of Buddhist works of art from Gandhara has provided some degree of preservation in times of instability, and enabled academics from around the world to perform safer and more accessible research. In the face of issues like war and climate change, research is still being undertaken, with new finds appearing intermittently. It is unlikely that we will ever uncover another eye canoom, but any coin, pottery shard, or scrap of writing adds yet another piece of the puzzle to restore the history of the land of a thousand cities. And with that, we will conclude our series on the Greco-Bactrians and Indo-Greeks. This was a monumental project, and arguably my most requested subject to cover. So, I hope that this series has lived up to all of your expectations. So far, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, and many kind thoughts have been shared, so I thank you all so much for your patience as I chipped away at the finished project over the last two years. Given the sheer volume of research I have covered, my complete bibliography is pretty extensive, but at the time of this episode's release, I ought to have made available a reader's guide to Greco-Bactria and the Indo-Greeks in PDF format. Much like my other guides, it is a visual tool which gives a list of books which I have found to be particularly useful or relevant, along with the main primary sources. This will be found on my website, and also directly linked in the podcast description. With regards to the direction of the show, I have a few points to make. While this is the last scripted episode on the Hellenistic Far East, there are still two more interviews I have left to release. One on globalization between the Mediterranean and South Asia, and the other on the Kushan Empire. These will be shared over the next month or so, and will truly be the end of our series. Following that, there will be a couple of bonus episodes made available, since your generosity in my fundraiser for my trip to Rome earned you some extra content that I otherwise would not cover, so thank you all so much for your generosity. For those of you looking to donate, you can contribute to the show by dropping by my coffee page or purchasing bookmarks from my Etsy store. You can always donate books for show research through the show's Amazon wishlist, and all these links will be provided in the podcast description, as per usual. With Bactrian India now covered, we will move away from grand histories to focus more on cultural topics, namely literature during the Hellenistic Age. This includes the new comedy movement and the plays of Menander, the epic poetry of Apollonius of Rhodes and his Argonautica, the court poetry of Callimachus, and the bucolic verses of Theocritus, alongside a few others. Hellenistic literature will occupy us for the rest of the year, 
but by early 2023, we will return back to the main narrative, as we will move into the next phase of the show, the arrival of the Roman Republic into the affairs of the Hellenistic world. <laughs>